Hey, everyone. Today, we're going to be talking about one of the most influential works that has influenced Hellevorn's work, Oscar Wilde's The Uncensored Picture of Dorian Gray. I think a lot of you know this already, but this is the uncensored version, which was published in 2012, I believe, and is not the typical version you usually read about in schools. Exactly, exactly. And uh, I also have the book with me and we're going to use it when we're going to discuss more about um, reading excerpts from the book and analyzing them. So uh, yes, it, it, it is a great pleasure to start our series of book reviews during our podcast with this wonderfully influential piece of fiction that was also so controversial at the time when it was written. Mm -hmm. So what is the main difference between the censored and the uncensored version? Um, well, um, interestingly enough, um, the, the uncensored version was, of course, the original one, the one that Oscar Wilde intended us to read. But when he submitted it to uh, the publishing house, uh, it was considered too straightforward in certain respects. And also they asked him not only to uh, subtract a few of the, um, the sentences or the ideas that were too um, scandalous for the time, but also to add a few more chapters. So this one has 13 chapters only. So in a way it is shorter than, uh, than the, the version that he eventually published uh, in uh, 1890. And uh, the differences are, well, they are quite, um, quite many. I think that we, we are going to discuss them more in detail after we go a bit into the background because I, I also want to read to mm -hmm. you uh, certain passages that were removed. But in order to understand why they were removed, we need to know a bit about the context uh, of the novel because uh, to us nowadays, uh, in, for readers of the 21st century, uh, it would seem very out of place. Like why would a sentence like this be removed? It is something like, uh, sorry, I'm just quoting off the top of my head um, so as to be shorter and to get into these in more detail afterwards, but something like describing the picture, Basil Hallward, the painter said, uh, there was uh, love in every stroke of the brush, I think. And we would think, why is that too explicit? In what way can that be explicit? But in a way it is because one of the things that are essential to the novel and that could not be censored no matter how much, uh, no matter how many sentences Wilde had to cut out of it is exactly the relationship between Basil Hallward and Dorian Gray, which is very much homoerotic because Basil is, uh, well, the only explicitly homosexual uh, character in the novel because we don't see the other characters having relationships with men but Basil the way he talks about Dorian Gray the way he looks at him the way he paints the his picture uh, well this is what it means and this is why that sentence was removed it was mainly the context not the words themselves mm -hmm. I see so let's start with, you know, a short summary of the plot. After that, we can talk about the social context in which the book was originally published and why it was so controversial. Exactly. So the picture of Dorian Gray is, uh, well, um, sort of like a, a breaking bad of the 19th century. It is, it is a book about... Uh, a very beautiful young man of 20 um, who was very pure and very innocent and very exciting to be coming of age in the high society of uh, Victorian England. And um, um, he meets, uh, he, he is friends with a painter who paints a portrait of him. And um, uh, the portrait has this extraordinary uh, beauty that uh, when he sees it, Dorian falls in love with it. Um, he, uh, he is fascinated by it. And um, Lord Henry Wotton, who is the, the third uh, important character in the story, who is uh, Basil Hallward's friend, um, tells Dorian that 
um, well, yes, the painting is beautiful and you are beautiful, but the problem is that all you have, your most important quality is your youth and your beauty. And you are, it is going to be forever young and forever beautiful. And you are going to be marred by old age. And this, this philosophy, this outrageous idea that Dorian had never thought about before being so, so naive and inexperienced really leaves a mark on him. And then he utters a sort of a prayer looking at the painting and that he wishes it was the other way around and that he was to remain young and the portrait was going to age. And because the novel can also be seen as a Victorian horror, as a piece of Gothic fiction, um, this is the moment when the change begins to happen. And from this moment on, Dorian is influenced by the hedonistic philosophies of Lord Henry Wotton, who basically tells him that he has to seize the moment and to seek pleasure, to devote his life to doing everything that is pleasurable, not thinking about the consequences. And this is exactly what Dorian puts into practice. And he begins to, to lead his life in a way that is more and more callous and more and more, um, well, not um, considerate about anyone else around him. And he simply does whatever he wants, uh, hurting people, manipulating, uh, and even arriving at murder. He, uh, um, certain people commit suicide because of him and then it culminates with a murder. So this is, this is the main plot of the novel. And of course the, the painting is the one that, uh, that bears the, the marks, the wounds of, uh, of Dorian Gray because the painting becomes, as it is described in the novel, a mirror of his soul. That is the true Dorian Gray. This is how mm. he would look. The sins having left marks upon his face. Of course, we, we already see that the moral of the story is, is very strong because, um, well, it, it is clear that the acts of Dorian Gray are very much condemned. He becomes a monster and the painting shows it. And the ending of the novel in which he tries to, to destroy the picture, but in the process destroys himself. It, it's very clearly judgmental of, uh, of this way of life and the protagonist is punished for it. And for this reason, Oscar Wilde was concerned that his book was too moral, but Victorian <laughs> society apparently found it too immoral. So this is a very nice paradox about it. So Victorian society didn't even want him to show these things. They just wanted everyone to be like this perfect role model and not have to go through even showing the negative side of humanity to say, hey, this is wrong, right? Yes, that is very true. They had this, this idea in that uh, society that we should all, uh, an author, a writer should only show uh, role models, things that uh, people will want to do because they were afraid that if you show someone the, the picture of Dorian Gray, they will say, hey, I want to be Dorian Gray. Which is <laughs> kind of weird if you, if you see the big picture because why would you want to be someone who becomes so horribly disfigured and so loathed by everyone and he loathes himself and in the end he dies because of it. Why would you take him as a role model? But Victorian society just thought people will be, you know, fascinated by that kind of seize the moment philosophy and they will want to apply it. Mm -hmm. And also the fact that Dorian's a very, you know, beautiful person, I guess that could kind of entice people to want his lifestyle. Oh, yes, definitely, definitely. And uh, well, in a way that that kind of happens, because as we will talk in, in a few moments about the life of Oscar Wilde, uh, we are going to see that his, his book was so controversial that it was 
actually, well, kind of a problem. Imagine the situation. Um, you, you are some lord in Victorian England, and your son says, oh, hey, I just got from my, uh, I, I just received a gift from my Cambridge colleague, and look what it is. It is the, the picture of Dorian Gray. His father will be, would become really suspicious, like, why would a male friend send you this book? <laughs> what is he trying to suggest? So it was kind of, well, they sort of had a point in a way, um, even Lord Alfred Douglas, who was Oscar Wilde's longtime lover, uh, was, uh, um, he was a fan of the picture of Dorian Gray and this is how they met. <laughs> so yeah, th this is what they were thinking of. But of course it is weird for, for a reader nowadays to see it in that way. Mm -hmm, definitely. Yeah. So I think another reason why this book was so controversial was because of Oscar Wilde himself, right? And especially the kind of lifestyle he had. And, you know, he was charged for gross indecency because he was a bisexual man. Yes, yes, indeed. Well, I, I think he was homosexual, but of course he was married, but this didn't have a lot of value in Victorian times, paradoxically, because they were uh, putting so much value uh, on the institution of marriage, but in fact, people were marrying for completely different reasons and not love. So uh, um, yes, indeed, <laughs> indeed. So, um, um, well, uh, homosexuality was considered a crime at the time, and interestingly enough, it, it, it had become criminalized in 1885, so only five years before the picture of Dorian Gray was published, and it was decriminalized in 1967, so 80-something uh, years. Uh, it lasted. So Oscar Wilde was was the person who really fell victim to this law. And uh, his book was, uh, well, his only novel, because he also wrote a number of plays, which were not as controversial. Um, this was uh, actually used as sort of evidence against him that he was a homosexual. Mm -hmm. so, even and the censored version was considered evidence. You can imagine if people had read the uncensored version. But uh, well, so uh, we can say that um, Oscar Wilde was um, um, was at the time of very. I mean, in the eighteen nineties, he was at the height of his success. And uh, he was the most celebrated playwright of England at the time. So he was a, a very fashionable thing to have uh, in, in the houses of the ruling class of England. Everyone wanted this controversial celebrity who was very witty and flamboyant and the fantastic conversationalist and uh, uh, always dressed after the latest fashions. And so um, he, he was a very charming person. But um, this great success lasted only five years because in um, 1895, um, he was accused of gross indecency and the trial really led him to be ostracized at, and, and rejected by everyone. So all these people who used to invite him to their houses denied that, that they well, well, renegated him, uh, even his family, even his, uh, his wife and children, they never, uh, his wife only visited him in prison once. He was imprisoned for two and something years, I think in Reading prison. And uh, his wife only visited him once to, to tell him that his mother had died. And they changed, uh, she and their children changed their names so as to wipe away any any trace of Oscar Wilde. Of course, I'm not saying that it was good to be Oscar Wilde's wife. Definitely, there, there was little between them. They were more or less strangers because Oscar Wilde was uh, having um, affairs with, uh, uh, with, with men and especially uh, Lord Alfred Douglas was the one that he was very much in love with and he was giving him very very expensive gifts mm -hmm. he was he 
he was left bankrupt oh by the gosh. whims of Lord Alfred Douglas, who wanted, you know, he, he was used to very high standards. He was a young Lord who was pampered and had never worked a day in his life. And uh, Oscar Wilde had, had really worked for his money in, for the most part. And Lord Alfred Douglas was asking for the most expensive clothes and perfumes and drinks and hotels and restaurants and all that. And for houses, they were traveling, for example, to, to Monaco. And he was saying, oh, I want a house here on the coast. You have to buy it for me or I'm going to cry. And he was like, oh, yes, of course, my dear. I'm going to buy it for you, anything you want. So he was literally left bankrupt by all of this. And um, there is a very nice book, The Complete Letters of Oscar Wilde. And there are a number of letters between them. And uh, well, <laughs> the letters don't paint a very favorable uh, picture of Lord Alfred Douglas, uh, especially if you are a fan of Oscar Wilde. I mean, I had moments when I was thinking, why was such an intelligent man as Wilde making all those sacrifices for that guy? Of course, Lord Alfred Douglas was a poet himself, and he was quite a good poet, but I think that um, he was... Um, he, he was for Oscar Wilde what Dorian Gray was for Basil Hallward. And uh, I think this is a very good comparison because Wilde actually um, states at one point uh, in, in relation to the three main characters of his novel that uh, Lord Henry Wotton is what people think I am. Um, Dorian Gray is what I would have liked to have been in a different age, perhaps. And uh, Basil Hallward is who I really am. So he's the painter, he's the artist who, uh, who, who has a philosophy and who wants to, uh, to live more or less from afar. So he doesn't get involved in all the uh, promiscuous things that Dorian Gray gets involved in. He just loves Dorian Gray from from a distance. Well, in Oscar Wilde's relationship with Lord Alfred Douglas, of course, they they were together. But um, what has been gleaned by biographers of Oscar Wilde was that it was actually Lord Alfred who introduced Oscar Wilde to the um, the underground, as we can say, of of London's. Uh, to, to London's underground and to prostitution and things like that. Before Lord Alfred Douglas, he was only having um, relationships with intellectual people, with artists. Uh, I don't even know, I, I'm not sure if he had actually had a relationship with the man before, but then it was more or less Lord Alfred Douglas influence that led him to, um, to be less and less careful and to be, um, to do things that would later be used against him. And, uh, but this is not why uh, Alfred Douglas destroyed him as it is said, but it, it was the fact that the one who, um, uh, who made the case against him was the father of Lord Alfred Douglas because he thought that, oh, my, my son is so corrupted and it is the fault of that writer Oscar Wilde, when in fact it was the other way around, if, if we can see a fault in that. So uh, yes, um, and, and this is actually why the trial uh, received so much attention because um, uh, if, if his lover were, weren't a person of uh, uh, coming from a great family and with a father with so much influence, it would not have been pursued as much. Because, well, to tell the truth, people didn't really care all that much. I mean, you weren't thrown in prison for something like this unless you, you really upset someone important or, or, or unless you did something really outrageous. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, uh, there was so much crime, of course, that the, the police didn't just chase uh, well, non-heterosexuals on the street. Uh, of mm -hmm. course, I, I, I'm not saying that uh, it wasn't um, a lot of injustice and all that, but, but I'm saying that I don't think that uh, Oscar Wilde would have had so many problems for it, not someone so high profile mm -hmm. was against him. That makes sense. Yeah. I think we previously talked about this as well. I think 
you know, there was a, I think it was the outlaws episode. We talked about how it was against the law technically to be homosexual, but then if you just did it with someone who was low class and like no one paid attention to them and they weren't well known, no one cares, right? It's only if you were having a relationship with someone who is really high up there, kind of like this Lord here that people will start using it as an excuse to attack you. Yes, yes, that, that is true. That is true. And well, on the opposite side of the spectrum, if you were super high profile, like the son of the prince, uh, then maybe you, you actually would not be prosecuted as well, because uh, it, it was assumed that one of these uh, brothels uh, that that supplied young men to to noblemen, uh, well, one of the patrons was uh, uh, Prince Albert Victor, but, but that was not, um, I'm not sure to what extent it was proven, but it is in the introduction uh, by Nicholas Frankel. So, uh, of course, someone who was super high profile would not be prosecuted, even if he was doing the same things. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the characters of Dorian Gray. There are three main characters and they are in a love triangle. Can you introduce each of them briefly? Yes, certainly. Um, well, um, I'm going to start with um, Basil Howard because he's the first character that we see in the novel. He's a painter who um, um, makes a, a picture of, uh, of a very beautiful man. And uh, this is the first scene of the novel. His friend, Lord Henry Wotton comes in and he says, who is this beautiful man that you are painting? You have to introduce me to him. And he says that, uh, I won't because you will spoil him. And Dorian Gray is the most pure and innocent person I have met. And uh, he has become my muse. And for this reason, this portrait is not so much a portrait of him as it is a portrait of my soul. And uh, as it will be gradually revealed in the book and through Basil Hallward's own words, he means that his love, his more or less secret love for Dorian Gray was poured into this painting. So Basil Hallward is what Lord Henry describes as um, a brilliant painter who is also a very dull person in real life because Lord Henry Wotton is the one who, who has these outrageous commentaries on everything. And this is one of the things he says that um, real artists, the one who, who have the most genius are the dullest people in real life. So <laughs> this is Basil Hallward. So uh, he's clearly the, the only overtly homosexual uh, character in this story, but at the same time, he does not put anything into practice. He, he pays compliments to Dorian and he makes him conscious of his own beauty, but he would never want uh, this to materialize in any way, the relationship between them. And then we have Lord Henry Wotton, who is uh, 10 years older than Dorian Gray, so he's 30 at the time when they meet. And uh, he's a very witty and scandalous character who is who can be charming in conversations, but also very condescending. And uh, he has all these um, all these um, outstanding quotations that are also very misogynistic at times and incredibly <laughs> cynical. Uh, he does have a wife, but they are not, uh, they are both having their affairs and leading their separate lives. And um, I'm going to read a couple of quotes just to make an, um, an impression of Lord Henry's personality. He tells Dorian, never marry at all, Dorian. Men marry because they are tired, women because they are curious. Both are disappointed. <laughs> this is one of them. And he says, I don't like simple pleasures and I don't like scenes except on the stage. I wonder who it was that defined man as a rational animal. It was the most premature definition ever given. Man is many things, but is not rational. I am glad he is often. I'm glad he's not, after all. And uh, sin is the only color element left in modern life. 
And he also says, the only way to get rid of a temptation is to yield to it. And this is one of the most famous <laughs> quotes of the picture of Dorian Gray. And of course, it is Lord Henry who says it. And he has this hedonistic philosophy that pleasure is the only thing that is worth pursuing in life and that one should dedicate their lives to doing this, especially when one is young and beautiful, because if you are beautiful, you have, well, you are charming to everyone and people end up doing what you want them to do. And they will always react positively to what you're doing, even if you are arrogant and callous and have all, 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 all types of faults. But if you are beautiful, you are more easily forgiven. And um, when Dorian um, first sees his painting, uh, like I said, it is uh, Lord Henry who, who tells him that, uh, that he's going to grow old and ugly and he's not going to have these uh, advantages that he has in society. So it is this, um, this influence of Lord Henry that changes the, uh, the naive Dorian into what he eventually becomes. So um, he's a bit, he was quite a, a Mephistopheles, Lord Henry, isn't he? <laughs> because of the influence he has on Dorian. He, he utterly corrupts him uh, in this sense because he gives him a sense of entitlement that Dorian will take to the extreme. And, and the more uh, questionable things he does, the, the more callous he becomes and, and the more he, he doesn't care anymore. He doesn't have any feelings. Mm -hmm. He is. And when you described Watson and, you know, his views and everything, it really reminded me of my own character, Arda Jan. Oh, yes, that's true. Yeah, <laughs> indeed. And who was also described as of a Mephistopheles, a provocateur, right? Yes, he is. And basically, he also thinks that nothing is really worth living for except for pleasure. It's hmm? true, exactly, yeah. exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is very, yes, this is very interesting to think about because <laughs> indeed he has so much uh, in common with, uh, with Ardayan. <laughs> He does. Yeah, it's very interesting. And at the same time, I think, is he a little bit like Eyalf? Because Eyalf is also a hedonist. Yes, I think so. In his philosophy, he really is like Eyalf. But uh, Eyalf is much nicer than him. <laughs> at least he's not as callous. I think that he would like to be seen as callous as Lord Henry, because he would think it, it gives him power, social power, and it would make him more impressive and more dangerous because he's obsessed with uh, not being, uh, you know, trampled by other people. So he wants to look dangerous. So maybe, but he's not as cynical. He's definitely not as cynical as Lord Henry is. But no. yeah, I think, I think he would like to. Uh, I mean, he definitely loves seeking pleasure and saying scandalous things. Mm -hmm. But the interesting thing about Lord Henry is that, well, we don't really know what are the scandalous things that he actually does. Maybe he just wants to tell them, to tell them to Dorian in order to influence oh, him and then gosh. to see what happens. <laughs> so this is, this is exactly the kind of relationship that they have because he, see, he says at one point in the beginning of the novel that he would very much like to influence someone's life. And this is exactly what he does with Dorian. He influenced mm -hmm. him so much that Dorian starts to do the things that he was uh, prophesying, but he wasn't actually applying in his own life. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That makes sense. And do you think the painter is a little bit like your character Ingvar? Because he also, you know, gazes at someone from afar and doesn't really want to manifest his feelings. That really reminded me of his feelings for Aiden. That is very true. I, I think that I was well, very much unconsciously uh, influenced by that because uh, when I reread the book, 
in order to prepare for the session. Um, well, uh, I was I was astounded by how much uh, it actually influenced me as a writer. I was not conscious of it because I read it when I was a teenager and I didn't think about it so much. And uh, this part with Basil's fascination with Dorian was pretty much lost on me when I was a teenager. I didn't really understand it because uh, it's not really manifested. He doesn't say, oh, I want us to be together, you know, and to my 15 year old mind, I didn't realize it. I thought, okay, they are friends and he admires him so much. So um, perhaps it stayed somewhere at the back of my mind. And when I created the relationship between Ingvar and Aiden, maybe it became manifest. I, I'm not sure if this is how it functioned. But yes, indeed, it is very much like that, but unconsciously so. <laughs> very but, true. Yeah, yeah that, that's true. Ingvar, Ingvar does admire Aiden from a distance, but would not like to, uh, I mean, I think he would be afraid to have a relationship with him, even if Aiden was bisexual and even if he wanted. I think he would be afraid not to ruin the the friendship. Also because uh, Ingvar has a high dose of idealism. Even if he can be very cynical, he can also be an idealist. And he does idealize Aiden in the way that uh, Basil idealizes uh, Dorian. Mm-hmm. Does he idealize Eyolf? I don't think so. <laughs> Ironically, so. because they were actually a much yeah. closer. I know, I know, but Eyolf is so far from ideal that I don't think he does. <laughs> so Ingvar's love for the two is quite different because for Aiden, I think it's very unrealistic in the sense that he likes an ideal of him, right? Kind of like what we see in the symposium. Plato's exactly. yeah. But for Eyolf, exactly, yes. I think he actually likes the real person because he sees all the stuff he does. He can't really like an ideal of Eyolf because he doesn't have anything to idealize him based off on. He knows the person very in depth, right? Yes, that is true. And he sees Eyolf at his worst. He, he witnesses some really bad things about him. And at the same time, he witnesses good things about him and he sees that he's indeed worthy of of respect and admiration in spite of the bad things that he does and he finds that they have some things in common and so he's able to to overcome his initial prejudice about ale whereas with Aiden um yeah I mean I think um I do think that that he has an, an ideal vision of Aiden. Maybe Aiden isn't as 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 good and as wonderful as Ingvar sees him. But at the same time, it's not. Uh, I mean, Basil admires Dorian's beauty and purity. With Ingvar, it goes beyond that. He does admire Aiden's intellect. Mm -hmm. So it's it's more about the intellect and the purity and the beauty, but most of all, the intellect. Mm -hmm. How much do you think Dorian is actually a pure person? Is he just naive, do you think? Or is he actually as pure as others idealize him to be? Because if he is that pure, why is he so easily corrupted? That is an, that is an excellent question, yes. Because um, I, I think that uh, throughout the novel, there is great emphasis placed on the correspondence between uh, physical beauty and purity, also because uh, um, it, it is this uh, aesthetism current that uh, Wilde is a part of, and uh, so, so perhaps it is a trait of that, but it appears time and time again in the novel that people refuse to believe that Dorian was uh, so corrupted and did all the things that he was said he was doing because he was so beautiful. And they would say that sin shows in the face, of, in, in mm. someone's face, in someone's expressions. So someone who looks like an angel cannot be bad. Several characters say this throughout the novel, including uh, Lord Henry. So even the cynical Lord Henry believes this. Mm -hmm. So uh, indeed, I think that he was not as 
pure as people thought he was. He was just very beautiful and he looked like an angel and he was misleading people. Uh, he was indeed naive and, and, and once he started uh, seeing what kind of power he can have over people, he became more and more entitled. Mm -hmm. He was a, a very rich young man. So of course, I, I truly believe that he was entitled even before that, but not to that extent that mm -hmm. he, he becomes so, so callous in what he does. And um, his relationship with Sybil Vane, the actress, is, is one of the most touching and at the same time revolting moments in the novel the way in the way he treats her and that is the a sort of a turning point because that is the first sin that he does uh he falls in love with this 17 year old actress who is also very beautiful and pure and um dorian's uh, views on love are very ideal at the time and at the same time perfectly beautiful because um, he comes to Lord Henry and he says that he has met the most wonderful being and she is not only beautiful and graceful but she has genius which really contradicts what Lord Henry says because he says that women cannot have genius they can only be decorative but he says no this this girl really has genius you should see her on the stage she's fantastic she, she plays in this uh, dingy third-rate theater, but I will make her a wonderful actress one day. And um, he wants uh, Lord Henry and Basil to meet her. And um, he, they become engaged. And um, um, he, um, of course, Lord Henry says, uh, oh, oh no, sorry, I'm going to mention that again. So they go to the theater and uh, um, she starts to play. And it's, it's, it's a very wonderful scene. She starts to play extremely bad. So there is a huge contrast between the, the nights before when Dorian uh, was there and was watching her. And now she plays so terribly that even those uh, uh, spectators in that third rate theater starting to get bored. And Lord Henry and Basil are, well, they don't really know how to say it, that she is a bad actress. But Lord Henry, of course, says it. She, she is a, a, a horrendous actress, but at least she is very beautiful. So congratulations. You are going to marry her anyway, and you would not want your wife to act. So it doesn't matter if she is a bad actress. But Dorian is, is outraged and he goes to her and he, he asks her why she played so terribly. And um, she says this, this really interesting thing. And, and this really ties with the theme of art and how it is portrayed in the novel. She says that until the moment, uh, until the night before, she had never lived in real life. So she was so immersed in every character that she was portraying because she was living through them. Their sorrows were her sorrows. Their joys were her joys. But once she met Dorian and she fell in love with him, she saw what real life meant and what love actually meant. And then she looked around her on the stage and she started to realize that everything is so fake. This is not real life. This is a stage. The moon is fake. The Romeo that I'm playing with is an old and fat guy. And she could not get immersed in, in, in the play any longer. And this is why she was so bad. And Dorian Gray treats her so callously at that moment. He says that I cannot love someone like this. What I loved in you was your genius, but now that you've lost it, I have no use for you anymore. And she cries and kneels and all that, but he just goes away. And then he goes and looks at the portrait back home and he realizes that something had changed. It was something in the expression, a sort of a disdainful uh, smile, a smirk. And... Um, that, that was the turning point. And looking at the portrait, he starts to think, well, was I too cruel to her? I don't know. And the next morning he receives a letter that says that Sybil Vane had killed herself. And uh, this is what, uh, this is when he starts to really change and, and to lose faith in, uh, uh, in, in everything, in romance. And we can say that he is disappointed, but at the same time, uh, he really doesn't want to acknowledge it. 
from that moment on, he doesn't think about her anymore. He says that he doesn't want to think about death. Uh, instead of mourning, he goes to the opera right away. Uh, so he becomes more and more callous and he drives several people to suicide. So he, he basically destroys everyone that he touches over wow. the following years. Mm -hmm. Do you think his idealism is what causes his descent into callousness? Because it seems like his affair with the actress reveals that a lot of his positivity came from the fact that he idealized and over-idealized a lot of people and themes. That is a very good point. Um, yes, yes, I think, I think that it is, because this is why he was so disappointed, right? Because he had a sort of fake expectations from her. So mm -hmm. yes, that, that is indeed a good point. I think this kind of reflects the work's um, emphasis on appearances and expectations. I think other people also have fake expectations when they see Dorian because he's so good looking, right? And they assume because he's good looking, he can't be a bad person. But as we see, it's because he's a very, I guess you can say shallow, vain, and someone who doesn't think things through. He just think, he takes things at face value or what society tells him. And he doesn't think about, oh, you know, this might be an analogy or it might just be an oversimplification, right? Life is more in depth than what society tells us it is. But he never gets to that point, it seems like. He just kind of does what he's programmed to do by society or his parents or, you know, people around him. Mm, yeah, that is a very good point. I, I had not thought about it in that way, but yes, indeed, it, it can be seen like this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely the, the difference between appearance and, uh, and reality is a central theme to the novel. And that's also reflected in how the novel portrays art, right? Because art is a reflection of how one person sees reality whether that's through writing or painting or photography or even acting like the actress, right? it's a portrayal of reality through the lens, a certain lens that a person has. It's not supposed to be reality itself. But then in the real world, as we see with Dorian, it, there's also a way to live inauthentically and live on ideals that are also not real. Mm, indeed, indeed, yes, yes, that, that is true. And so I think that from this moment on, he refuses to, to think about reality so much and just focuses more and more on appearances and becomes more and more shallow. So indeed it, it, it is on the one hand the disappointment that he that he uh, experienced. Mm -hmm. It's because of the disappointment that makes him withdraw deeper into fantasy. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, that is excellently put, yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And of course, at the at the same time, it is the the influence of uh, of Lord Henry, who is also extremely callous in regards to Sybil Vane's uh, death. And uh, well, I have here a quote. Uh, well, Dorian is at first concerned that he had been cruel to her. He says, "How I, I was terribly cru cruel to her." And Lord Henry says. I believe that women appreciate cruelty more than anything else. They have wonderfully primitive instincts. We have emancipated them, but they remain slaves looking for their masters all the same. They love being dominated. So I'm very sure you were splendid. <laughs> so even though she had died, he says that, oh, you mustn't think about that. It was a beautiful ending. She, uh, well, well she, she was an actress, she died in the theater, so it doesn't matter, just stop, stop thinking about this and let us go to the opera. And so they go on the same day to the opera together. And the next day, Basil comes to Dorian and he says, well, I, I, I searched for you at home the other night, but I imagined that you were with the girl's mother to comfort her because she must be distraught. And Dorian says, my dear Basil, how should I know? I was at the opera. And he starts to talk about some lady that he charmed at the opera. And of course, Basil cannot believe his ears. She's lying, her body is in, in some dingy room and you weren't at the opera with some ladies. So this is the moment when he becomes extremely callous. Mm -hmm. 
Exactly. So uh, let me see. How about the theme of Hellenism? How does that, you know, how does that express itself in this work? Um, that was that was an important theme at the time because there was a fascination with uh, uh, classicism, uh, especially among people in, uh, well, definitely among intellectuals and in, in the circles of uh, uh, Oxford and Cambridge students and. Um, um, certain authors like Plato and especially his symposium were considered sort of uh, iconic books, uh, especially for non-heterosexual people. So uh, it, it was, um, well, homosexuality was very much linked in, in the circles of intellectuals and artists of the time with this concept of uh, of the platonic love and of this sort of male ideal. Um, of course, in, in Plato's work, it is mostly, or, or in um, Greek antiquity, it was mostly about an, uh, the relationship between an older male and a younger one. And this is how Oscar Wilde refers to it himself. But, um, well, what exactly means it's, uh, maybe in, in the relationship between Dorian Gray, who was 20, and uh, Henry, who was 30, and Basil, who was also a bit older, but they are all young men, or so they are described, so not, not a huge age difference. This kind of relationship when uh, someone is, uh, the younger man is the muse of the older one. But of course, the, the platonic ideal doesn't require uh, physical consummation of this kind of relationship. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, and in Dorian, uh, Basil is perhaps the one who, uh, I mean, uh, it is not consumed between the main characters, definitely. So we can say that their, their relationship is sort of based on this, but I think that Basil's type of, of affection towards Dorian is the most representative of this uh, so-called Hellenistic ideal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I can definitely see the influence. Mm -hmm. So what is the main difference between the uncensored and censored versions? Now that we've really talked about the plot and the context, can is it time to finally compare the uncensored version with the censored version? Yes, I think so. I think so. Um, well, first of all, um, what, the things that were removed from uh, um, from the original manuscript were not only uh, references to homosexuality, but to any kind of promiscuity, uh, heterosexual as well. So um, um, I, I will read out certain things that um, the things that Dorian Gray was um, rumored to have been doing. So, hmm, a moment, I, I need to, to find it. Okay, it says, it says like this. Um, why is it uh, Basil comes to Dorian and he, uh, he tells him that he needs to change his way of life and there are rumors about him. He cannot believe the rumors because Dorian is so angelic, but there are rumors and he says, why is it Dorian that so many gentlemen in London will neither go to your house nor invite you to theirs? Um, He told me that some, uh, someone, some lord, uh, told me that you were a man whom no pure-minded girl should be allowed to know and whom no chaste woman should sit in the same room with. Why is it that every young man that you take up seems to come to grief, to go to the bad at once? There was that wretched boy in the guards who committed suicide. And uh, indeed, there are several people who commit suicide uh, after having uh, had 
some sort of relations with Dorian Gray. It is not really said what kind of relationships he has with the men, but uh, it is said uh, in, in several ways that uh, he was uh, influencing the young men so much that they were trying to copy him, to copy the way he looked. He was a trendsetter in fashion, and also they tried to be as uh, pleasure-seeking as he is. So this is the extent. It is never said more, I mean, in terms of possible homoerotic content that there isn't even in the uncensored version there is nothing more than this but he does um there is another man whom he uh, blackmails at one point and uh and, and leads to suicide that he says that uh you you used we used to be very close and i know you want nothing to do with me but if you won't help me now then i have this evidence against you and if i show them uh you will go down as well so mm -hmm. presumably it was something of this sort but um interestingly um certain among the words that were um that were censored was the word mistress. So even when he takes up, well, mistresses among certain uh, girls and ladies, uh, they didn't, they had to remove the word. They thought it was, I don't know, instigating people to take up mistresses. I have no idea what that, you can imagine the hypocrisy that was at play because so many people were having uh, extramarital affairs at the time, but just don't call them mistresses because it is, it is so terrible. Mm -hmm. um, also, um, yeah, this is one one passage with the mistress um, about. Oh, he he meets another very virginal girl this time she's a peasant and um, he wants to to make her his mistress and it says uh, but but he decides at, at, at the last moment to not have anything to do with her and to break up with her because he thinks it is the right thing. He has already bought her a house in London, uh, so, so he has made her a very expensive gift, and in return she was to be his mistress. But at the time, this would of course have ruined her reputation because he was not going to marry her, of course. He didn't want to marry anyone. So um, th this is one of the passages that was removed. Uh, Lord Henry says about the situation. Had she become your mistress, she would have lived in the society of charming and cultured men. You would have educated her, taught her how to dress, how to talk, how to move. You would have made her perfect. She would have been extremely happy. After a time, no doubt, you would have grown tired of her. She would have made a scene. You would have made a settlement. Then a new career would have begun for her. And he says that, do you think that by breaking up with her and not making her your mistress, you did her a favor? Because now you left her to, to have relationships with men from her own social, um, social um, um, you know, well, what's the word? Background? <laughs> Strive. Yeah, yeah, sorry, yeah, for, for, from her own social background. And after having been with Dorian, she would not feel satisfied by those men. She will start to see faults in them. So Lord Henry says that he was not empathetic in, uh, uh, in, in not making her his mistress. Um, and also certain parts were removed, which were um which were i think explicit to um yeah th these are the parts that are kind of explicit to homosexuality what is it that every young man that you take up seems to come to grief why is your friendship so faithful to young man and then another scene a man with curious eyes had suddenly peered into his face and then dogged him with stealthy footsteps passing and repassing him many times. For some reason, <laughs> this was considered outrageous. Um,
Yes, I think, um, of course, there is the part where Basil explains uh, his, his love for Dorian, but I have so many notes in this book that I'm really sorry, I cannot find it right now. I don't seem to find it. Oh yeah, sorry, here it is. Just a second. Yeah. Okay. Um, this is what Basil Hallward tells uh, Dorian at one moment, and this is one of the, the, the truly homoerotic things and quite, quite overthy. He says, um, from the moment I met you, your personality had the most extraordinary influence over me. I quite admit that I adored you madly, extravagantly, absurdly. I was jealous of everyone to whom you spoke. I wanted to have you all to myself. I was only happy when I was with you. When I was away from you, you were still present in my art. It was all wrong and foolish. Of course, I never let you know anything about this. It would have been impossible. You would not have understood it. One day, I determined to paint a wonderful portrait of you. It was to have been my masterpiece. It is my masterpiece. There was love in every line and in every touch there was passion. I grew afraid that the world would know of my idolatry. I felt, Dorian, that I had told too much. So this is the terms in which he describes the portrait. And that line with, there was love in every line and in every touch there was passion. It was believed to be an, uh, a metaphor for lovemaking or an analogy to lovemaking. And this is why it was, it was cut out right away, especially in the context. So this is what I was talking about that. If you read just that one sentence, you say, how, how is that obscene? But in the context, it is, well, definitely this is what he truly means when he says it. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. Yeah, so- Pretty uh, mild. I know it is very mild by our standards nowadays. This is the, <laughs> the extent of it. Uh, the book that we're going to discuss, uh, well, maybe next, uh, in, in our next session, Maurice, is, well, it is more explicit than this. And it is also a, a very different style because it's not as philosophical and not as embellished because it's not a part of the aestheticism uh, literary movement. So it is more, much more straightforward and much simpler in many ways, but more psychological because of it. So uh, uh, there we will see things more, much more explicit. In fact, that whole book, was impossible to be published in the con in, in, in the context because it is a, a gay romance through and through. So it's wonderful that we really have this this fantastically written book from 1913 that attests to a lot of the the attitudes and the behaviors of people at the time. And if if Forster had not written it, we would not know anything about it. And Oscar Wilde is is many there as well because by the time in in 1913 he was uh, a sort of a, a symbol of a uh, homosexual man so it was it was actually enough to say I am like Oscar Wilde and everyone would understand <laughs> that you were gay so, <laughs> so this is how famous Oscar Wilde was his trial was like the trial of OG Simpson <laughs> 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 to compare it with something more recent. <laughs> How about um, Brokeback Mountain? Do you think any of these works that we discussed, like, you know, Dorian Gray and Morris, have any influence on Brokeback Mountain? Because that was, I think, the first LGBTQ film to win any kind of major award in the 2000s. Well, 
Uh, well, yes, I'm, I'm definitely, uh, I, I'm certain that it had something to do, that, that it had an influence, because there are so few books of the time, uh, of, of the sort in history, that it, it is impossible not to be influenced by them when you are touching upon this subject. So, uh, well, yes, I think that it was, uh, that movie was sort of pioneering i mean what was definitely pioneering for for the reasons that you said in a similar way to what the picture of dorian gray was pioneering and more so morris because it is more explicit in this way but at the same time it wasn't it wasn't published so mm -hmm. uh, but it is very interesting that brokeback mountain was popular but then the film Morris was was not and uh, yeah we, we are going to discuss about this some other time but uh, yeah th this is really interesting it is definitely less dramatic and it portrays a different time and a different place in Brokeback Mountain but yeah I, I really wish it was more popular. Mm -hmm. Brokeback Mountain was originally based on a novella too. It was from the 60s or 70s, I think. So I think around the same time as when Morris was finally published. Yeah, true, true. Yes, I think I think this is, uh, uh, that was a good moment to finally publish all those works that people had been stashing away from the eyes of the public. <laughs> there was more openness mm -hmm. uh, in, in talking about uh, sexuality in general. Mm -hmm. Next week, we're going to talk about one of the books that represent the sexual revolution, Philip Roth's Portnoy's Complaint, which is a little bit similar to Dorian Gray in some respects, even though I don't think anyone else has made this comparison before. But both books are about a sexual libertine who is the main character. That is true. I, that is really a wonderful comparison. And definitely we need to, to, talk, more, uh, to talk more about it. Mm -hmm. And uh, in order to conclude, I would like to, to read a bit of uh, uh, what was the preface written by Oscar Wilde uh, upon his first publishing of The Picture of Dorian Gray, because it, it contains some very famous um, ideas of metafiction and, if you will, advice for writers. It says that, um, there is no such thing as a moral or an immoral book. Books are well-written or badly written. That is all. <laughs> yeah, I, I totally agree with that. You know, I don't think we should censor ourselves, especially when we're exploring quote unquote controversial topics. Some people really want to censor themselves or they're pressured to, but sometimes that just takes away the artistic integrity. Definitely, definitely. That is true. It is a very valid and very uh, contemporary thing to say. Uh, even though, well, we are enjoying certain liberties nowadays, but at the same time, there is still a lot of censorship. I mean, I think that we would be ignorant or hypocritical to think, oh, look, Victorian morality was so, was so strict and was so backwards, we're so cool right now, because I actually think that the picture of Dorian Gray would be also censored today, or maybe not censored, but met with great controversy, but for different reasons, is if it were written by a contemporary author. Uh, think, for example, about the very misogynistic mm -hmm. uh, comments of Lord Henry. Well, if a writer nowadays, especially uh, a man from the upper class were to write a novel that had so many misogynistic <laughs> things, everybody would say, oh, <laughs> he is a representative of patriarchy and patriarchy Absolutely. has to fall. <laughs> uh, poor Oscar Wilde would still be censored, but for different reasons, mm -hmm. which, is, which is so strange because books are not meant to represent, uh, well, most of the time, I mean, good, well-written books, like Oscar Wilde says, do not really represent the, uh, the views of, of the author. So if you make a negative character, someone who is mm -hmm. really inspired from Mephistopheles, why do you censor him? Just let him be evil. This is the point of the story. Why would you draw the conclusion that the author himself is misogynistic? This mm -hmm. is really interesting. But 
Yes, poor Oscar Wilde. <laughs> I'm sad to you think that he will still be uh, oh. still burned. <laughs> I'm, and, yes, yeah. Yeah, sorry. Um, and uh, still about uh, criticism, he says this. Um, it did, diversity of opinion about the work of art shows that the work is new, complex, and vital. When critics disagree, the artist is in accord with himself. So he was really thriving on controversy. <laughs> <laughs> because definitely he is right. Because if, if no one disagrees, it means that you have made something too simple. It is too straightforward, right? So, so he really says that one should not be afraid of controversy. Mm -hmm. And definitely he wasn't. <laughs> mm -hmm. He's a kind of provocateur, kind of. Definitely, yeah. definitely. And, and he very much enjoyed it because uh, he had just the right amount of controversy and he was really successful and his work was acclaimed as uh, intellectual and wonderfully written, even if there were a lot of, of bad, of bad uh, criticism. It was rather his... Uh, the the unfortunate certain unfortunate events in his life that that led to his downfall and not his writings so, mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. well thank you so much this was amazing and next week we're going to talk about morris and um portnoy's complaint and after that i think we'll think about what else to talk about but i'm also adding another philip roth to this list after this conversation um Sabbath theater which also has a mephistopheles like character as the main character and your quote about you know the characters not necessarily representing what the author believes in i think really rings true because in that work Sabbath theater philip roth wanted to create someone who was very unlikable and he does say a lot of misogynistic and just terrible things even some racist things and are we supposed to actually take this at face value? Because he's not saying he's a good person. He is a messed up person. This is so fascinating. And I cannot wait to talk about Philip Roth's novels and about Morris and about all the other books that, that we, we are planning to talk about. I'm, I'm really excited for this series of book reviews. It is, yes. When are we going back to the short stories? <laughs> We've been sidetracked. Yes, we are, definitely. Yeah, quite soon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Goodbye. Bye. Everyone.